This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And tonight I'm joined by my dear colleague, Mike Yuseem, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management here at Wharton. Mike, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Ann. How about you? I'm also doing great. Awesome. And we actually, usually, Mike, we do a little bit of an uh, reflection on the week, yeah. but tonight we're going to cut that reflection just okay. to a reflection I'll on the fact that we do a reflection because we have our first guest in studio. Right here in the right studio. Right here. And I'll we want to take advantage of that. So in the first hour, our guest is Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. The center is honoring Senator John McCain next week with its Liberty Medal, and we are eager to talk to Jeff about that. In the second hour, just let me mention that we'll be speaking with Kristen Hadeen, the founder and CEO of a company called Student Made, that's M-A-I-D, <laughs> and she tells the story of her quest for success in the just-published book, Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing, parentheses, Almost Everything Wrong. So that should be fun, Mike. Especially because a few people, including one in the studio, can <laughs> totally relate to that title. <laughs> I <laughs> certainly can myself. So, uh, but how about, let's turn to our first guest right now, who is in the studio with us, and that's Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And before we begin, Jeff, just let me say a little word about you and your biography, and I'm hoping that more will come out in the course of the interview. Just for our listeners, the National Constitution Center is the first and only institution in America established by Congress to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. It was actually created by the Constitution Heritage Act of 1988 and opened its doors on July 4th, 2003, here in Philadelphia. And Jeff, hmm. the CEO, is also, in addition to being CEO, professor of law at the George Washington University Law School and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. So how about we'll start with that, Jeff, with that brief bio and welcome you here to the show. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have you. It's just wonderful to be here. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. So maybe let's start at the top with the um, with the medal that is about to be awarded. Could you say a little bit more about that medal? Yes, it's a very inspiring medal that's awarded to those who have spread the blessings of liberty across the globe. And recent recipients have included Malala Yousafzai and the Dalai Lama. And uh, we are so honored to give it to John Lewis for his lifetime of service and sacrifice. He embodies both the spirit of preserving, protecting, defending the Constitution as a, as a war hero and also of bipartisanship and compromise and reasoned deliberation that the framers of the Constitution anticipated. It's really meaningful that our current chair of the National Constitution Center, former Vice President Joe Biden, will award the medal to his longtime friend, John McCain. They have a longstanding friendship dating back to their 20 years together in Congress. And it's a dramatic manifestation of this willingness to reach across the aisle that once existed and is now imperiled. Oh, no, Jeff, let me just uh, mm -hmm. jump in on that while we we're talking about the Liberty Medal. Among those who in the past have received it as well are Nelson Mandela, Mikhail oh. Gorbachev, and uh, it's quite an extraordinary list of people. I actually happened to have attended the event when uh, Mr. Gorbachev came to receive uh, the medal. It was really mm -hmm. quite something. Mm -hmm. uh, a thousand people were there. It was uh, um, just a wonderful evening. When we give awards, we are honoring people, but we're also sending a message. And so what, what is the message behind the Liberty Medal? Well, the, the, the message behind the, the medal is, is to celebrate those who have mm. sacrificed their lives for freedom and have embodied it and have inspired others to defend it as well. And it is really meaningful. It's a kind of uh, especially poetic moment to find in, in Senator McCain someone who both defended 
liberty and the Constitution through his valor and, and heroism, and also exemplified it as a statesman in Congress. So I think this is going to be an especially meaningful mm. Liberty Medal. Very good. Can may I ask you a little bit about the process? And I ask you because, as Mike uh, knows well, we have a prize here too, <laughs> the Lipman Family Prize, which we award to an organization that works in the social sector and whose uh, the way of working is transferable to other organizations. But that process of figuring out who the prize winner is is very, very complex. And I think it's fair to say that we, we've learned a lot mm-hmm. by doing it, and we're on the path of learning more. So could you say a little bit about just how you go about choosing, selecting someone for the medal? Well, there's a Liberty Medal Committee at the National Constitution Center, and it's chaired by uh, Amy Gutman, the great president Ah. of the University of Pennsylvania, who's on our board of trustees and is such a visionary in helping to identify the handful of people who are of the caliber of previous recipients. Basically, when you have a prize that's awarded to former and current Nobel Prize winners and those who've gone on to win the prize, like Malala Yousafzai did soon after receiving the Liberty Medal, there are just not a whole lot of people in the world. So it, it doesn't, it's, it's not a long list. It's kind of a short list every year. Mm-hmm. And the real challenge is identifying a recipient and then persuading them to be able to find a time to come to Philadelphia to accept it. So it's, 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 it's a small group, and, and the, the, the obvious names are, are on it uh, year after year, and, and we're just thrilled that when the everything aligns and we're able to find someone like Senator McCain who can come this year. So am I hearing you right that um, that being here, being present to accept it is uh, is an important part, that in order to earn or win the medal that you need to be present to accept it? You do. That, that's a requirement. It's kind of like, not to compare the it, uh, in prestige, but the Nobel Prize in Literature we know has to be accepted in person as Bob Dylan learned when he didn't want to show up. <laughs> exactly. So, That's why I asked. Yeah, it's like that. And uh, <laughs> occasionally there are exceptions. The Dalai Lama became ill just before he was uh, to accept it a few years ago, and Richard Gere accepted it in his stead. So you, there, 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 there are occasions like that, but you're supposed to come in person if you can. Okay. So um, a short list, and just how large is the committee? How many people on the committee? I think it's about three people. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, okay. It a small it, committee. It is, yeah. And is the process, I'm going to borrow one of Mike's yeah. words, deliberative? <laughs> the truth is it's done by consensus. There, there mm-hmm. are the obvious names, and we think, and Amy or someone else on the committee will say, hey, hey maybe we can get this person this year, and then we... We try to do that. So okay. it's it's a very – it's a model of the uh, consensus-based deliberation that the framers hoped for. <laughs> it's a <laughs> very, very collegial good. committee. And if I may say, um, it reminds me of uh, our roots in the Quaker tradition. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I'm going to shift ground here for a few minutes because you are the chief executive officer mm-hmm. of the National Constitution Center. All people listening to this program, including those in Canada – Uh, know the essence of the fact we're a constitutional democracy. Uh, They probably know the first line of the Constitution, something about we the people. And they know, I I know something about uh, the process since it happened right here in Philadelphia of the drafting of the Constitution. But take us a bit more into it. Uh, Who got it going? How long did it take to put it together? We know the Bill of Rights came later. So just give us a little bit of a precy on the Constitution. And as I recall, I think it's something like 1787 it really got going. So this was quite a while ago. It sure was. And Mm -hmm. uh, I always remember the date that the Constitutional Convention convened, uh, May 25th, because the address of the Constitution Center is 525 Arch Street to commemorate (laughs) May 25th. And it was ratified on September 17th, 1787. So you can do an amazing amount with a tight deadline. And it's remarkable (laughs) to think of how these uh, 55 or so men, and they were men, all white men, came to Philadelphia in, in Independence Hall and within four months uh, created the greatest document of human freedom in history. It's an amazing, thrilling story of freedom. It's a story of compromise. We have at the Constitution Center the earliest drafts of the Constitution, mm. which were written not by James Madison, who many people think of as the leading framer of the Constitution, but by a framer called James Wilson, who was from Pennsylvania. Mm. 
And it was Wilson who came up with the idea that we, the people of the United States as a whole, have the sovereign power, as opposed to we, the people of the individual states who had been sovereign under the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution and which were so unwieldy because they required unanimous consent of all 13 states that the states couldn't raise money to support armies and George Washington couldn't get his troops paid and there was no common economic uh, coordination. So the articles failed and the delegates came to convent to Philadelphia to create a constitution constrained enough to protect liberty but energetic enough to achieve mm-hmm. common purposes. And that was the genius of the constitution. During the first two months before Wilson took pen to paper, they hammered out the compromise between the large and small states mm-hmm. and came up with this bicameral system where the mm-hmm. small states are represented with two representatives each in the Senate and the House is done by uh, by popular vote, but the mm. but the genius of the Constitution was to diffuse power, to separate it vertically and horizontally, uh, horizontally and parceling out among the three branches of the federal government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branch, and horizontally between the federal government and the states. And by diffusing power, the framers ensured that no one branch or one state could come to speak in the name of we the people, that only the Constitution represented the will of the people as a whole. And that's why judges have the power to strike down unconstitutional laws, because when there's a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of our temporary infallible representatives in Congress or in the White House, the judges prefer the principal to the agent, the master to the servant. So that's just a bit, but there's uh, mm-hmm. much more to say. Jeff, just a quick question on this, and I'm going to hand it back to Anne. Mm-hmm. Many countries, as you know well, have looked to our Constitution as they wrote their own. But the framers, the original writers of our Constitution, probably had very little precedent to go on. So on this particular issue of the separation of powers, was this sort of just a whole-born thought that they came up with? Or was there some precedent that they pointed to in adopting what we take for granted is just fundamental to how our system works, and that is the separation of the three branches of government? There were precedents. These were learned men. They were uh, scholars of antiquity and of the governments of Greece and Rome. And they believed that uh, pure governments, pure aristocracy uh, or monarchy or democracy could degenerate into their uh, impure forms of tyranny or oligarchy or the mob. So they wanted to create mixed forms of government that would combine elements of popular will with filters that would prevent of the people from communicating or uh, instructing their representatives directly. The most direct models were the revolutionary era state constitutions that were drafted between 1776 and 1787. And the different states came up with different combinations. There were some unicameral legislatures. Uh, There were some places where the governor uh, was part of the legislative branch. Others created separate legislative judiciary and executive branches. Many had bills of rights. And when it came time for James Madison to draft a Bill of Rights, which he had initially opposed but came to support in the face of popular demands, he basically cut and pasted from these revolutionary Mm -hmm. era state constitutions uh, because there was so much consensus about what the unalienable rights of the people were. So those were the models. There was it was just an explosive time of political theory and and of of the ferment of ideas uh, between the revolution and, and the drafting of the constitution. And they were all drawing on their classical models. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about James Wilson? Yes, he's an unsung hero of the Constitutional Mm. Convention, Uh, perhaps the greatest scholar of the convention. He came from Scotland. He was educated in St. Andrews University. Where my daughter went. Really? (laughs) Yes. Oh, what a distinguished place. I think (laughs) it doesn't have a great golf course or something. (laughs) It does, yes. But the university is is Mm. really quite remarkable. It's amazing. And Mm -hmm. think think of this great genius uh, Mm -hmm. studying there and then coming to the U.S. and Benjamin Franklin, I think, had some kind of law school. There was an associate in, in Pennsylvania. Wilson came to study at, at a law school that Franklin was associated with as well. And he was initially a loyalist, but he came to support American independence. And he comes to the Constitutional Convention, and he comes up with this path-breaking, uh, epic-changing idea that sovereignty should be vested in we the people as a whole. Mm. And he's demanding popular election of the president at a time when James Madison insists that the president should be elected by the Congress. Mm -hmm. And the second draft of the Constitution, drafted by Wilson in August 1787, has a a president elected by the legislature. That was Madison's proposal. And the next draft, uh, Wilson's compromise is the Electoral College uh, because they didn't trust the people directly to elect the president. 
Wilson also is responsible for changing the language of the preamble. Originally, the preamble said, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantation, and so forth. Hmm. And it was changed to we the people of the United States to signal Wilson's view that the people of the United States were sovereign. Wilson had a remarkable Hmm. life. He had a sad ending. He was a justice on the Supreme Court after he was at the Constitutional Convention, but he died in debt, pursued by creditors, and he's not much remembered today. The the musical 1776, which I loved, folks from my generation may remember, paints Wilson as a kind of clownish figure, and it's a a libel to this great genius who deserves as much credit as Madison for shaping the intellectual structure of popular sovereignty. Very good. So I I just would love to hear you talk a little bit more about both the horizontal and the vertical. So could you say a bit more about the horizontal distribution of power? So <clears throat> so Wilson's very first words in his very first draft of the Constitution on July 24th, 1787, and I, I can reel off these dates only because we're displaying these drafts at the Constitution Center, and listeners can find them online at American Treasures. If you put in American Treasures and Constitution Center, you'll find the link and you can compare the drafts, which are riveting. Wilson's first draft says, resolved, that the government of the United States shall consist of a legislative, executive, and judicial branch. That's it. That's the basic idea is splitting the atom of sovereignty, as Justice Kennedy put it, uh, to uh, diffuse the power of the people, um, which is unitary, in between these three branches. And it is designed to be very hard in America to get anything done unless all three branches agree that Congress has to pass a law, the president has to sign it, and the Supreme Court has to uphold it. And if any of the three branches balks, then you can't have a law that speaks in the name of we the people. And if the two branches presume to speak for the people, but the judges think it violates the Constitution, then then the law can't go into effect. So paralysis and gridlock and all of the stuff we're seeing in Washington now isn't necessarily an institutional failure, but an institutional success. That it's You're not supposed to have Brexit in the United States. You can't have a snap vote that would make a fundamental constitutional change. Mm. And it's also supposed to be very hard to change the Constitution in order to ensure that no branch gets too much power. To amend the Constitution, you need an amendment proposed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress and ratified by three-quarters of the state legislatures. Um, so so, so that's a, a very basic principle. Very good. Just let me remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio Channel 111. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall. I am here with Mike Useem, and we're speaking with Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. So, Mike, how about you? Because I could keep going, but uh, you go. Well, uh, both <laughs> I don't want to dominate. Uh, would love to keep going, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. This is really, really yeah. interesting. And it's so interesting historically because the contemporary implications are all around us. Yes. But we'll come to that a little bit later on. I'm really interested in your reference to the fact that we begin now with this phrasing, we the people, which implies mm-hmm. the power of the government comes from the people sovereignty. At the same time, we've also got the Electoral College, Mm -hmm. which, though the power comes from the people, we wanted to avoid, uh, I think you you used the word uh, demagoguery. Mm -hmm. Help us understand how the writers of the Constitution thought about that possibility, why they took steps to ensure against it, and maybe the obvious follow-up question, how's it working out? (laughs) (laughs) The the Constitution is not a purely democratic document. Mm -hmm. There's almost never a situation where the people express their will directly. Madison says in the Federalist Papers, the the complete exclusion of the people in their collective capacity characterizes the American system, unlike the direct democracies of Greece and Rome. So not just the Electoral Mm -hmm. College, but the Senate was initially elected by Mm -hmm. the state legislatures. Um, It was only the House that was elected by the people, and it took the 17th Amendment to change that and allow direct election of senators. The 17th Amendment was passed during the Progressive Era when there was a series of other populist reforms like the initiative and referenda and direct presidential primary that were justified in the name of increasing popular control over government, but which have led to a more populist presidency and more populist forces in the states that can allow the people to express their will directly. How's it working out? Well, the National Constitution Center, which you you, you mm-hmm. recited our inspiring mm-hmm. mandate from Congress, yeah. 
we have to be nonpartisan and right. engage in nonpartisan education. But I can say in a completely nonpartisan spirit that around the world and in America, we are seeing growing forces of populism and nationalism that are challenging the constitutionalist values that the framers mm -hmm. took for granted. The framers did not trust direct democracy. They thought it led to the mob. They wanted to preserve things like individual liberty, uh, checks and balances, an independent judiciary, and fundamental rights from encroachments by populist forces. So wh whatever your politics, I think it's fair to say that there are new, obvious, powerful new forces, technological forces like yeah. Facebook and Twitter and of course, not serious exam because that's a good <laughs> venue for deliberation because we yes. get to talk for an hour. <laughs> right. But other other populist media forces and also new political forces that are creating a much more populist presidency in Congress than the framers anticipated. So could we talk then about some of the challenges and those pressures? So, for, for example, um, at the electoral college level, we've had changes in population and growth. And that's had an impact on the Electoral College. And so do you see that as one of the pressures where states with more population have undue sway? So I'm just curious. I'm really, I don't know. I'm asking. Uh, the Electoral College is not a uh, proportional system, and it absolutely gives uh, disproportionate weight to small states who get uh, their political power uh, um, Emphasized. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a good or bad thing depends on – well, you can argue it round or flat. The argument against it is obviously it allows in some circumstances, most recently in 2016 uh, and before that in 2000 and a few other times in American history to have the loser of the popular vote mm -hmm. uh, become president of the United States. The argument for it is not the original argument for the Electoral College. The Electoral College was designed to be a group of independent wise men who knew the candidates and would choose the best and most thoughtful among them. And that noble vision basically petered out immediately. As early as the election of 1800, really? with the really? rise of political parties, hmm. the Electoral College became a mechanism for channeling the partisan forces within the states to ensure that the electors voted for the candidates they were pledged to elect. Okay. So regardless of what you think of the college, it's not fulfilling its original purposes. But the argument for today is that we're not a purely national uh, system. And in order to respect federalism and to ensure that elections are not decided by the uh, big states on the coast and that campaigns are fought state by state and to preserve our, our federal system, it's appropriate to have the system we do. Uh, I think that's the best I can quickly do, yeah. summarizing the arguments for and against it. Yeah. Jeff, to stay on that mm -hmm. for a minute more, mm -hmm. if we had a clean slate, a fresh piece of paper, and mm -hmm. I realize some of these issues inherently become partisan, but staying on the nonpartisan terrain, given the concerns of the writers of the Constitution, is there some other way we might have preserved sovereignty without the demagoguery other mm -hmm. than through an electoral college? Well, let's think about the options. You, you could uh, Madison, You could have Madison's solution, which was elect, election by the legislature, but that wouldn't work right. very well in an age when mm -hmm. the legislature is so polarized. Mm -hmm. You could certainly have direct election of the people, and that's what Wilson wanted. And I suppose, given the modern understandings of the presidency as being an essentially popular office, it's unusual, to say the least, that we have this unique filtering mm -hmm. mechanism but that might lead – well, you know, in the last election, it would have led to a candidate who was less populist than the winner of the electoral college, which reminds us that populism is not the same as majoritarianism. You can yeah. have populist movements and uh, the Princeton scholar John Werner Mueller has a new book on populism, says – uh, populist leaders presume to speak in the name of we the people, uh, and they say we alone represent the people. So when President Trump said, I alone can fix it, that was a populist statement, unlike a pluralistic politician who recognizes that he or she uh, just uh, can, has some of the uh, mandate from the people, but it, other branches are allowed to play their role as well. So so on a blank slate, if the Constitution were being drafted today, I assume we'd have direct election, just as most uh, European democracies do. But of course, that doesn't settle the question of 
whether it's uh, done in a first-past-the-post system or proportional representation or runoffs. And, the, and that's another argument for the Electoral yeah. College, that if mm. you eliminate it, you have to make a lot of highly contested choices about what voting system to mm. have that would have huge consequences for who's elected. If you were trying from scratch to do what the framers did and slow down popular deliberation so that people couldn't make snap judgments, you might want at least two rounds. France requires a Mm. runoff, uh, and that slows Mm -hmm. things down a bit, and they have a more powerful president than we do. Oh, very good. Well, you know, we're going to take a short break, (laughs) but when (laughs) we come back, I would like to ask about the branches and the pressures that that they are feeling. So... We're going to take a short break, but you're listening to Leadership in Action, and we'll talk more with Jeff Rosen. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Hussein. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. We will be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm your host. I'm here tonight. I'm Anne Greenhall, and I'm here tonight with Mike Hussein. And together we have the pleasure of joining with us in studio Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And before the break, we were talking about the pressures on the Constitution and on our government. And so we'd like to pick up that thread. And Jeff, I'd like to ask you about pressures in Congress. You made a comment before the break about how uh, some of that paralysis that we see is actually a good thing (laughs) because we want to um, keep snap judgments at bay. And so that kind of uh, tension is important to the functioning of the government. Could you say a little bit more about Congress? Certainly, uh, tension, uh, constructive clashing, and the need to get broad consensus before stuff passes is part of the framers' vision. But I don't think anyone would argue that the current Congress is a model of Madisonian deliberation. (laughs) And there have been forces that have led to extreme polarization in Congress that might have distressed the framers. They include... Uh, the direct primary and the decline of political parties, which has led to more extreme candidates on both Mm. sides that have pandered to their base. Uh, Partisan gerrymandering has Mm. uh, entrenched incumbents and exaggerated the power of individual parties. So there's a case before the Supreme Court in Wisconsin where uh, Republicans won uh, 48% of the vote, but 60% of the seats in the state legislature, uh, which is responsible for district in Congress, and that can that's being challenged as a violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. but that can lead to representational problems where uh, majorities can be shut out from having their views represented. And mm-hmm. some have argued that uh, campaign finance mm-hmm. uh, pressures to raise big dollars have uh, distorted um, representatives and made it impossible for them to represent the actual will of their constituents. That's contested, of course. But um, coming up with a solution to these problems is elusive, uh, nonpartisan districting seems to have helped. In in California, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has challenged uh, nonpartisan districting commissions that have led to the election of more moderate candidates. But more broadly, the whole notion of the primary system where once you win a primary, you're guaranteed winning the general. But uh, in order to win the primary, you have to be so extreme because of low voter turnout. This is mm-hmm. a really big problem. The fact that something like 7% of the electorate determines who wins the primary, which determines who wins the general, mm-hmm. suggests that majority views, which are much more moderate, may not being be being represented in Congress. You mm-hmm. can't and shouldn't force people to vote. Mm-hmm. So that is not a solution. But the old day of the political party, um, when in the election of 1912, the party leaders chose William Howard Taft over the more popular Theodore Roosevelt because they thought he was a more moderate uh, force, uh, uh, may have had something to say for them. Mm, Boy. So just on primaries for a minute, 
the way in which people vote in primaries varies from state to state. Can you say a little bit about maybe best practices from your just from your perspective? Gosh, I I, I don't know. I mean, um, the question of whether you want more people to vote depends on who you want to win. So it's a, that's a highly partisan mm-hmm. question, uh, and that's why we're having so much controversy about voter ID laws and other requirements of registration. Mm-hmm. Um, there being some are being challenged before the Supreme Court uh, right now. And obviously, whatever party feels advantaged by depressing turnout will use whatever methods it has to do so. And whether or not that violates the Constitution is a complicated question. It's not the the Supreme Court held uh, by a five to four vote uh, in which the liberal judge, I think actually may have been six to three, the liberal justice John Paul Stevens joined the conservatives that voter ID laws by themselves are not unconstitutional. Um, All this is to say... Best practices may be different than what's constitutional or not, and what you think of as best practices may determine what party you belong to. Very good. (laughs) Mike? Yeah, Jeff, on a different frontier, but one you also know very well, as I recall, the framers of the Constitution did not have spell check and they didn't have a whole lot of copy machines. Uh, but they did write the Constitution, and it's guided us for, well, for, for a couple centuries now. But you did a project a couple of years ago with Brookings Institution. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Constitution 3.0, and it's about the impact of these new technologies on just about everything. So if um, James Madison were around these days and he's dealing with Twitter and all, mm, all right. these new technologies, which we, we all value, we all use, uh, Walk through with the Constitution. Should the Constitution have recognized or been ready to anticipate technologies they didn't know then that kind of changed the equation in some fundamental ways? What do you think? Well, as great as Madison was anticipating mm-hmm. Twitter, is asking too much yeah. of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a great exchange between the late Justice Scalia and Justice Alito in an argument a few years ago. And uh, uh, Scalia says, you know, the question is, what was what Madison think? And Alito said, he didn't think about video games. They didn't exist then. <laughs> but it's not uh, impossible. And it's important to try to translate Madison's values in the age of Twitter. And as the, you know, in a, in a nonpartisan spirit, I can say with complete confidence, Madison would have been appalled by Twitter, mm. or at least by tweeting presidents, because he said in Federalist 10, that the worst thing that could happen in a a republic would be for representatives to communicate directly with their constituents. He feared that that would lead to demagoguery. So he wanted to set up filters, mm. and the idea of reaching the people directly would have been not very Madisonian. There's so much more to say. That that yeah. Brookings project was really interesting, trying to channel the framers' values on questions like cell phone technology and ubiquitous surveillance and so forth. And and, and obviously it's it's not an exercise in mind reading or prophecy, but – identifying the principles that the framers were declaring and then try to translate them into a different world. Yeah, and Jeff, let me turn that around and ask it uh, kind of the same question with a slightly different flavor to it. Given the way we do operate and given the fact that we do have Twitter and everything else that kind of is in between, to what extent do you think our current system, our constitution, the norms that have developed, the way we have three branches of government and we have a fourth estate, the media, and so on, to what extent... Do these arrangements, though they may be flawed, bring out the best in national leadership, which, after all, isn't that what the Constitution is all about? I think it's hard to argue that we're getting the best of our leaders. And what's so striking is that we're getting a very fine caliber of leaders. There there are people in the Senate— uh, the two co-chairs of the Constitution Center's Madisonian Constitution for All Commission are Senators Chris Coons of Delaware and Mike Lee of Utah. And these are extraordinarily well-educated constitutional lawyers. Chris was in my law school class. Uh, Mike uh, Lee is the son of Rex Lee, the great solicitor general under Ronald Reagan, a constitutional mm-hmm. scholar, the author of books about the Constitution. So no one would say that these mm-hmm. are uh, – these are extremely well-educated, very thoughtful, mm. committed, scholarly politicians. The question are, what are the 
structural pressures on them that make it difficult for them to reach out, reach across the aisle the way that Senator McCain used to do so in, in, with Vice President Biden that make it necessary for them to fear primary challenges where from even more extreme opponents that uh, require them to declare their positions in public rather than deliberate in private so that they can reach compromise. These are all not the fault of the ability of our leaders, but things like technologies and structural changes that just decrease the incentives for democratic deliberation. We've been talking about the legislative branch, and I know that you've written a book about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, the personalities and rivalries that defined America. So, Jeff, I'd be interested to hear you talk about the judicial branch of government and maybe some of the pressures that it faces. The most uh, dramatic pressure is that citizens may perceive the courts in purely political terms. So we have for the first time in at least recent history, if not ever, a case where you often have five justices appointed by Republican presidents voting against four appointed by Democratic Mm -hmm. presidents. And that can create the impression that the courts are politicians in robes. The current Chief Justice, John Roberts, is determined to avoid this misapprehension. And he believes that the courts need to maintain an institutional legitimacy that transcends partisan politics. And that's why he voted uh, the way he did in the Affordable Care Act case. And that's why he has made it his mission to try to persuade the court to converge around narrow, unanimous decisions that avoid these partisan splits. It's tough in a polarized age, but I do hope listeners won't embrace the facile assumption that it's all politics, because if you do that, you miss everything that's meaningful and constraining about the Constitution and miss the opportunity to try to separate your political from your constitutional views. That's what (laughs) law students try to do. That's what justices try to do at their best, and that's what all citizens should try to do. And the Supreme Court does more often than it's given credit for reach these multi-partisan or, or uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. And, I just, and I realize, I'm, I'm thinking, actually, Jeff, you said my last question was political. I, I'm wondering if all questions are political. No, that's fine. So we can have political questions. <laughs> I have another I can, political question. <laughs> sure. Um, just uh, on the one hand, just the lifetime appointment. You know, on the one hand, just from a distance point of view, that seems to give uh, justices a degree of freedom <laughs> to exercise their um, thought and judgment. Uh, But there has been some conversation about whether or not those terms should be uh, limited. So I'm just curious to hear from your perspective or from our founders' perspective what they would say about that. The founders would have been amazed that so many people were living into their 80s and they didn't have antibiotics. <laughs> that's true. So, so that's a big change. <laughs> yes, it is. And, the, the, you know, traditionally a Supreme Court term was a couple of years or people would just resign because it wasn't prestigious enough to stay on and they would, didn't like riding circuit, which required being on horseback all the time and getting sick on the road. Mm-hmm. So – Having justices who serve for 20 or 30 years is not what the framers had in mind. Mm. So for that reason, you could say that it would make sense to have term limits the way the Canadian Supreme Court does of 10 years or 15 years, and you could stagger it so each president has two appointments or something. Mm -hmm. There are different ways to do it. The difficulty is it would take a constitutional amendment, and those are very hard to pass. And in an age when one party likes the current composition of the court, then it's probably not going to want to change things. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are all sorts of good theoretical arguments against life tenure, Mm -hmm. but in practice hard to change. The argument for it, as you said, is judicial independence, and that Mm -hmm. is a crown jewel of the American system. We should never underestimate the importance Mm -hmm. of it. And the fact that I think we should be confident that if if the president were to do something that clearly violated the Constitution, for example, punishing a broadcast network because he disagreed with its speech Mm -hmm. or punishing throwing people in jail because they refuse to salute the flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that the Supreme Court, by an over- lopsided majority, would check him. Mm-hmm. And that's partly a tribute to lifetime tenure and the fact that he can't fire them and to judicial independence. That's very good, Mike. <laughs> you know, just uh, referencing what you alluded to along the way, which is the Chief Justice Roberts' attitude or mm-hmm. posture that he's looking to build, in a sense, nonpartisan decisions. So we, we get away from partisan politics in the court. I think from an outsider standpoint, that sounds good to me. 
you're giving this Liberty Medal on Monday to Senator John McCain, who's often voting with the Republican Party on some issues, but he also has crossed over a couple times recently. And Jeff, I think I'm encouraged by your two observations. If I put them together, see if this is a summary point. The Constitution sets boundaries, structures how we operate, but the power of independent agency is still there. And if when people rise above what they might have been given or what they're structurally maybe incentivized to do, uh, we do have people in this day and age who are able to, again, address the broader national interest. What do you think? It's inspiring, isn't it, when you <laughs> see profiles in Courage? And whether you, you – know, of course, Kennedy was writing about heroes of the Senate who took unpopular mm-hmm. positions that diverged from their partisan interests. And regardless of what you think about the Affordable Care Act as a policy matter, just seeing a senator cross party lines because he thinks the public interest requires it is exactly what the framers yeah. mm-hmm. had in mind. Jeff, I'm going to use your phrase to turn quickly to another direction because we're beginning to run short on time. Uh, it was a act of courage when you took the job that you have right now. <laughs> that's true. No, it was an act of luck on my part. <laughs> okay, it's the well, best thing that ever happened to me. Well, that, that's where I'm going with the question. Uh, you'd been a law professor. You you write extensively. You you wrote extensively, and then you agreed to come on to build the National Constitution Center. What led you to do that? Uh, some. Uh, Synchronistic force led led them to me, and and I uh, had never run an organization in my life, and they took a flyer on me. But uh, I have a great passion for the mission of the Constitution Center, which is to bring together citizens of different perspectives for constitutional learning and education. And I mm-hmm. think that it's a calling that uh, I have. I feel so privileged to be part of this amazing team that is trying to inspire people of all backgrounds to educate themselves. And it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done. Yep. Quick uh, follow and then back over to Anne. What was maybe the most challenging thing as you did become CEO that you really had to master in the category something you simply had not done before? And there are probably a lot of things you hadn't done before. You're running something. There's a budget. You hire people. Uh, you, you're a great museum. You're an ed- educational institution. So what turned out uh, just with the benefit of looking back now in coming there, what proved one of the greater challenges that you had to master? Well, the most immediate challenge, the most important part of the job is fundraising because it's a philanthropically supported organization. It was created by Congress, but right now has very little federal money and is supported by the generosity of of donors. And uh, we had to raise uh, some money pretty quickly when I got there. Um, the uh, one of the twelve original copies of the Bill of Rights was coming from the New York Public Library, mm-hmm. and we had to raise one point five million dollars in about three months in order to display it, or else it was going to go back to New York. <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge. Okay. Yeah. But I learned uh, something really important, which is uh, profound, which is that fundraising is about uh, relationships. It's just about getting to know. Uh, people, uh, the, the, the patriotic philanthropists around the country who are passionate about this mission of constitutional education, it's not transactional. Uh, you have to uh, get to know them and they have to get to know you. And, and uh, when, you're, uh, when, when the mission resonates and the opportunities for support arise, then it's a natural progression. It takes time, like any the building of any relationships. Mm-hmm. And just having the patience to recognize that there's nothing personal about uh, people who are not ready to give you money at any moment, but that it's just uh, a natural synchronicity develops was is a wonderful experience in humility, patience, and re- gratitude because I'm just <laughs> so grateful for the extraordinary uh, generosity not only of treasure but of time of these philanthropists mm-hmm. who serve on the Constitution Center board, who, sp- who spend time teaching me how to run an organization, to run HR, to... Uh, work with budgets. It was a a greater learning curve than I've ever had in my life, and it was thanks to the generosity, uh, philanthropic, and and, and also uh, 
spiritual uh, of these of these great philanthropists. It's been an amazing experience. Mm. Jeff, I have a follow up, but first, let me remind listeners that I'm mm. Anne Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Yuseem, and we are talking with Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. So, Jeff, help help uh, us understand how large is your organization? How many people are working with you at the National Constitution Center? We have a full-time staff and volunteer staff of about 120, and uh, we have affiliated scholars around the country, and uh, we travel around the country, and that's that's how big it is. Very good. And so you've had, as CEO, would you say that your primary responsibility is outward-facing? So, for example, as you said, raising funds. Are you also... um, I'm sure, trying to get the word out about the National Constitution Center. And how are you going about doing that? We found that digital distribution of our content has been a really exciting way of reaching millions of people. Mm -hmm. So the interactive constitution that we created on the web has gotten 12 million hits since it launched just a year ago. And uh, it was done in collaboration with the leading liberal and conservative lawyers organizations, but it's been adopted by other partners like the College Board as the center of the new AP curriculum. Khan Academy is doing videos around it. Uh, We have other media partnerships uh, to push it out there. So that digital distribution was crucial. Our podcasts are getting about 100,000 listeners a week. The website is now the third most visited museum website in the country after oh, the Smithsonian and the Met, thanks to these great digital stats. Our videos for kids are getting reaching 14 million uh, people in the classroom. So the, 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 the web and uh, digital and audio technology are an astonishing content distribution platform. And it's all free and it's all available and it's really me- meaningful. Uh, so that's how we're getting the word out. Wow. So you know, that actually you uh, <laughs> you make me hopeful <laughs> because your mission, as I said up front, is to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. So it's very clear that you've made great strides in getting information out there. Do you, This is maybe an impossible question, but I'll ask. Do you have any sense of whether or not you're making headway in having conversation about the Constitution and our government and leadership uh, be more nonpartisan? Yes. And by being nonpartisan, it doesn't mean we stay away from hotly contested issues. We talk about all of them. It's just that we assemble diverse voices, the leading liberal and the leading conservative thinkers, to discuss and debate them, exploring areas of agreement and disagreement. Mm-hmm. So that's what the podcasts are about. That's what the interactive constitution is about, where every clause of the constitution includes a common statement by what the liberal and conservative scholars agree about and then separate statements about what they disagree about. We are having impact. I mean, the digital stats themselves show the reach of these programs. And we're also learning about what, how people are reacting I was really interested to learn that the most popular provision of the interactive constitution that people are downloading is Article 1's and the Necessary and Proper Clause, which defines the powers of Congress. People are hungry for information about the structural constitution and what Congress has the power to do. The Commerce Clause is also very popular, as well as the First and Fourth Amendments. So it's interesting to learn about how hungry people are for substantive knowledge. And we're also measuring impact by finding out people's knowledge after watching our videos, and we find a 72% increase about the nature of the powers of Congress after people watch the videos as well. Also, at our debates, we poll the audience of before and after. The winning side is the one that's changed the most minds. Oh, great. Uh, and, uh, and then <laughs> we ask great. whose mind has been open to the arguments on the other side, and those numbers are high as well. So people are hungry for this content, and it's inspiring to see them respond. Mm-hmm. Now... Oh, Mike, you go ahead. No, no, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. All right. Uh, as I know Mike is thinking, so that's why I jumped in because I could hear his thought. <laughs> mm. I, we have listeners uh, all across the United States, and they are in all kinds of businesses and all sorts of positions. So to connect a little bit to them, the topic is leadership. What, what would you hope that they might uh, take away from our conversation? Leadership is about inspiring people to compromise and thoughtfully to deliberate. You certainly need a vision, and uh, it can involve uh, inspiring people to elevate themselves in a direction they may not have been inclined to do before. It can mean resisting 
popular opinion rather than pandering mm-hmm. to it. It can be about preserving basic ideals, both of a constitution or of an organization like uh, integrity or efficiency or, or customer service or uh, equality and respect and dignity. But it is ultimately just think about the founders and think about their vision of a society where people of different perspectives could come together thoughtfully to deliberate in the public interest and could converge around the public good. And you'll realize that that's not just a abstraction. It's, it's yeah. at the core of what the success of the American Republic is defined by. And it's at the core of any any good business as well. Very good. We have just a few minutes, yeah, but Jeff, Mike, please. Jeff, quickly along that line, I've just wrote down a couple words you just offered up. We would like to see people who build cooperation, that elevate the conversation, resist popular pressures when they shouldn't be embraced, preserve ideals, and provide for thoughtful deliberation. For people who would like to indeed embrace those ideas, act on those ideas as you yourself have and coming to serve as CEO of the Constitution Center, what advice would you have for people maybe coming out of college these days or in their 20s on, on working indeed around the, this, this terrain we've just referenced? Educate yourselves. Take mm-hmm. the time to cultivate your faculties of reason, as Justice mm-hmm. Brandeis said, channeling <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, which means take the time to seek out arguments of people mm-hmm. with whom you disagree and to learn about them and respectfully entertain them. You don't have to accept them. Before you make up your mind about an important question, hear the other side mm-hmm. out. Don't go into filter bubbles and echo chambers and get all of your news and information from one side or the other, which is so easy to do in this mm-hmm. online age. Mm-hmm. That's why the interactive constitution is such a model when you have the common statement and the separate statements. And I do – this is my mission. So listeners, yeah. go to the interactive constitution at constitutioncenter.org or download it in the App Store. Pick a provision of the constitution and take the time to read those Essays. It'll just take a, a bit of time, but you, it'll elevate you and, and might inspire you to learn more. Um, and 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 and, uh, and then seek out um, the, the, that humility. Uh, the spirit of liberty is the spirit that's not too sure it is right. Learned hand said so. In the organizations that you are creating, um, take the time to bring together people of different perspectives, hear them out, and uh, and see where you agree and disagree. Jeff, so, and just, would you like to give one last word about the upcoming um, honoring of Senator John McCain for our listeners? Well, it's going to be a a night to remember. Um, Check it out. The live stream will be on constitutioncenter.org. The the major networks are uh, running it. Um, It's from 7 to 8 on Monday. But but really use that to start engaging with the Constitution Center's material. Check out our We the People podcasts, our videos, our educational material and become an informed, lifelong learner about the Constitution. It's one of the best things you can do as a citizen and as an American. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Well, Jeff, I know I I speak for Mike. (laughs) I'll let him speak here, too. We really so very much want to thank you for joining us tonight. Here, here, Jeff. It's great to have a conversation. Great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. So just let me share again with all of our listeners that Mike Useem and I, Ann Greenhall, have had the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And the center is honoring, honoring Senator John McCain next week with its Liberty Medal. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem. This is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 111. We will be right back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.